Well, good morning. Uh, I don't have a flowery head thing, although, you know, I, somebody suggested I wear it. I, I delegated that to Mitch. Didn't he do a nice job? If, he'll be available afterwards if you'd like to take a picture with him. Actually, I don't know if he will be. Don't, don't quote me on that. But it's great to be here with you this morning. Today, weather, well, maybe spring is kind of questionable. Yesterday, I don't know, it was almost like summer, wasn't it? Uh, beautiful day. I hope you got a chance to go outside and enjoy it. Uh, Okay, so now do you remember the good old days when you used to be able to uh, negotiate on the price of a car, right? Come on, well, some of you, well, I heard, I hear some getting excited and some people groaning. Well, the groaning is the real reason why that's kind of like not happening anymore, right? It's more, now it's kind of like, well, that's how much it is, do you want it or not? I mean, it's like buying groceries or something. It's not nearly as fun as it was. You used to have to pull out like all these tactics, you know, and, and people, you either loved it or you hated it. People like me, I just, I loved it. I thought it was really fun. Uh, other people, not so much. Clearly there are more people that didn't like it than did because it's sort of all different now. Now it's just, you know, it's, this is what it is. Buy it, take it or leave it. But this idea of negotiating the deal, I, I remember, well, it was about 15 years ago, we were buying this, this truck for uh, this business that I owned, and so we had gone to the dealership, and uh, I, you know, I started my, all my routine, and I was getting nowhere. The guy's name uh, was Darwin, okay? I'm not making this up. This is, the guy's name is Darwin, right? So the thing that's in the back of my mind the whole time is, let's check out this uh, survival of the, the fittest thing here, Darwin. Bring it on! Uh, and so, again, like I said, it wasn't making any progress, so I finally resorted to, the, maybe you've heard of this trick, I'm going to write down a number on a piece of paper, I'm going to slide this, slide this across the table, and the guy, he looks at it, and he says the worst phrase that you could ever hear in any of this no- negotiation. Anybody know what that, what did they say? Yeah, I heard it, I heard it, you know, you've been there, uh, I'm not authorized to do this. I've got to go talk to my manager, okay? And so begins this whole process of going back and forth between me and the manager, right? So this goes on, and it's probably three or four times. And so finally, brilliant idea, I just decide, well, I'm just going to follow Darwin to wherever the manager is, get Darwin out of the way, and start talking directly to the manager. So I go behind him, you know, long enough that he didn't didn't seem I was right behind him, Went, tried to nose my way into the manager's office. And of course I was told, well, that's not how we do this. You know, you got to go get, get out of here. And I was just trying to say like, look, if, if this Darwin guy, if he can't get it done for me, I want to deal with somebody that can actually make the decisions. I want to know who has the authority, who has, who has the power to get this done. And maybe for you, it's not, you know, buying a car. Maybe for you, it's more like talking to somebody about your mobile phone bill or, or a cable bill or an insurance company, or in my particular case, God bless them, Dish Network. But uh, yes, you know, you've been there too. You've been on that phone call. Uh, the, the reality is you eventually hit the point where you say, <clears throat> can I just talk to your supervisor? Is there a manager I could talk to? Because somebody's authority eventually runs out, and then when you really need to get something done, that person is not available. You want to get to that person. You want to get to the one that can get it done. Well, I, I did get the deal done on the truck, just I know some of you are curious. And uh, 
It came at the expense of them saying to me, all right, we'll do it, but never come back here again. (laughs) That's how you know that you've got a good deal, right? So when it comes to this idea of authority and power, we, we like very much to be dealing with the people that we believe can get things done. It's, it's a matter of authority and power when it, it comes to negotiating. A successful negotiation, you can negotiate all you want, but if you're negotiating with the wrong person, then what difference does it make? So we're trying to make sure that we're talking to the right people that have the right kind of authority for what we're doing. And that's what we're going to focus on today as we continue in John chapter 5. Now, if you were here last week, uh, Rick Matson talked all about this miraculous healing at the pool of Bethesda. And what had happened was Jesus picked that specific time, that particular location, to show what he's all about. And he went to this guy, and with nothing more than just the words of Jesus' mouth, he tells this guy who's, who's been, uh, it's the, the text says, an invalid for 38 years, he just tells the guy, get up, take up your mat, and walk. And the guy got up, picked up his mat, and walked, which caused a huge scene, caused a lot of intense reactions, because Again, and we'll get into this in a minute, but Rick had talked about the the law of Moses prevented or prohibited people from doing all of these things. What what was this Jesus guy doing? He's healing this guy on the day that you're not supposed to do any work. Now we got this guy carrying his mat around. This, This whole thing is written for us for our benefit because remember, John, the gospel writer, tells us at the end that all of the contents of the gospel of John have been written so that we might believe and know that Jesus is Lord, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. Okay, so when it comes to all of that, of course the people are starting to get outraged, not only at what Jesus is doing, but now we're going to look at why they're outraged over what Jesus is saying and what he is claiming, because Jesus makes some very well, some would even call them insane claims about his own power, about his own authority. And so we're going to have to wrestle with that and decide when it comes to us, when it comes to us thinking about who this Jesus is, think about what your answer to that particular question is. But before we dive in, again, we're going to be in John chapter 5. Uh, let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together as your body. We thank you that you've not left us to figure things out on our own, but instead, You have given us the gift of your Holy Spirit. We trust, Lord, that now in these moments that we have together, that you would lead and guide us, that you would have your word penetrate our hearts with your truth, that we might then confess with our mouth that you are Lord. And so, Lord, I just ask that it not be my word that we hear today, but instead it be your word alone, because we know that's the only thing that has the transforming power to bring us from death to life. And we ask that you do that right now in these moments. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so like I mentioned, this this question that we're going to be wrestling with is, who is Jesus? Because the world today has lots of answers to that question, right? I mean, we, we tend to think, though, as Christians, that that's an external discussion. We think about, well, people, unbelievers and atheists and all this, 
they're the ones that are, we know who Jesus is. I, I would not be so quick to say that we know who Jesus is. A lot of times we think we know who Jesus is, but have we really been confronted with the reality of who Jesus is? Because what does the world tell us today? Well, don't be offensive. Don't offend anybody. And so this whole thing, this question when it comes to who Jesus is, we, just as much as anyone else, maybe even more so in the church, we try to sanitize Jesus to create Jesus to be something that's more acceptable, more relevant. Uh, you needn't look no further than just listen to some of the worship songs that are on the radio now. It's like, is Jesus your savior or your boyfriend? Is Jesus like your buddy? What's happening? And so there's nothing wrong with, of course, the intimacy of that relationship. But when it comes down to it, a lot of times we're trying to make Jesus more palatable, more acceptable. We don't want to offend anybody. But here is the truth. Jesus is offensive. Jesus offends not just some people. Jesus offends everybody. He's an equal opportunity offender. Okay? And so we have to deal with that in terms of how do we respond to the offensive nature of Jesus. There's, there's no middle ground. There's no like, well, if we could just explain him this way, then it wouldn't be so bad. Then more people would, and even we can think about when we're sharing our own testimony. If you're a Christian and you go out and you share your testimony with others, maybe you're trying to share Jesus in such a way that, well, I, I'm going to take the edge off. I don't, I don't want it to be too much because I don't want people to reject me. Again, we start to make it more about ourselves rather than Jesus. But Jesus is offensive. He's offensive. We'll, we'll talk about why that is. But he was especially offensive to the people that were hearing this whole conversation in real time. So like I said, last week we had this miraculous healing and that got enough of attention on its own just by him doing it. But then... All of a sudden, here now in verses 16 through 30 in chapter 5, we start to see Jesus explaining things and Jesus making claims about himself, Jesus making claims about his power and his authority that are wildly offensive, wildly offensive. And so, you know, again, the temptation is we say things like, well, you know, when it comes to Jesus, maybe he's just a good moral teacher. Maybe he's just a good moral teacher. I hear that one a lot. Matter of fact, at my last church, uh, I had someone come up after a sermon and, and say to me, hey, I really liked some of the things that you said in your message, but you don't need to talk to us about Jesus. Uh, Jesus is fine for the little kids. Jesus is fine for the children's moment. But when it comes to talking to us, to adults, we just need you to talk about God. I often wonder how many syllables are in that. But that, the point is that they just, they, that's what they wanted to hear. They don't want, why? Because Jesus is offensive. It's offensive. And so they don't want to hear it. They'd rather hear more about this sort of milk toasty idea of God than about Jesus and what Jesus claims. So in order for us to know what Jesus says about himself, we're going to look at that today in John chapter 5, 16 to 30. Now, if you have not already done this, this would be a good opportunity for you to make a mark in your Bible or on your electronic device and note to yourself that this is really important because this little section is, this is, if not the, 
one of the most direct places that we find Jesus making these audacious, preposterous, seemingly insane claims about himself. And so uh, we're going to get into that in just a moment. People, like I said, have been trying to define Jesus in their image since he walked the earth. And so we've always had to have some kind of response to that, especially this idea of, of Jesus just being a great moral teacher. And so I want to I put forth this. He's either much more than a great moral teacher or he's much less than a great moral teacher, but he's not a great moral teacher. And the one who says that the best, I think, is this guy named C.S. Lewis. If you've not heard of Lewis or you've read anything, I would recommend that you read one thing by him. You can feel free to go on from there, but this book he wrote called Mirror Christianity, which was based on these radio interviews that he gave on the BBC during a very dark time in the world, World War II. And so he was an Oxford professor. He had walked away from faith. He had been baptized uh, as a younger kid uh, in the Church of Ireland, and then he had walked away from faith. And then he kind of worked all the way back, not just to believing in this sort of abstract God, but in Jesus himself. And so he writes this in Mere Christianity on page 55. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, you can fall, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral or great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So in other words, like I said, he's either much more than a great moral teacher or much less than a great moral teacher, but defining him as a great moral teacher doesn't work on any level. We might summarize it this way, because people have said this based on Lewis's quote for years and years and years. So I didn't come up with this, but it's so good, I stole it. Ready? Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. It's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. And so when it comes to what you believe, what you think about Jesus, if somebody asked you that right now, what would your answer, answer actually be? And, and don't, don't be so quick to just say the right words. Ask God to search your heart during this time we have together to, to, to help you understand what your real answer is when it comes to who is Jesus. So like I said, in order for us to know maybe how to rea react to that, maybe it's best that we understand a little bit more about what Jesus says about himself, who he claims to be, what, what power and what authority he claims to have. And then we'll, we'll continue asking this question over and over again. Who do you say Jesus is? Take a look, starting in John chapter 5, verse 16. I'm going to read this all the way through, and then we'll go back and make a couple of observations here. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. 
In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but because he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. So when it comes to this, when it comes to Jesus making these claims about who he is, about his identity, yes, but also about his power and his authority and what he is able to do, there are three things I want to take a look at. And the first is this, Jesus the Son is equal to God the Father. Jesus the Son is equal to God the Father. Now, I got to take just a moment here and remind us all that when, when it comes to this, God, we have one God, one God, but that one God is in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, that is a divine, that's truly a divine mystery. We, we can't really understand or maybe even explain that adequately. And so, you know, whatever metaphors we choose to use to try to do that, I mean, there's lots of them, they all fail at some point. We just can't quite understand this. And so there is a, there's a mystery to that, but it doesn't mean that it has to just remain totally ambiguous and totally mysterious. Jesus is helping us by even just helping us understand the relationship between a parent and child, this idea of father and son. Now, we might kind of lose some of the significance in our culture today, although there are plenty uh, of cultures around the world and in this country where what we're going to be talking about today is, is more uh, in line with what, what, what's happening here. But this relationship between father and son meant something very significant during this particular time, not just in Jewish culture, but also uh, in Roman culture and Greek culture as well. So we'll take a look at that. But this idea that the, that the Father uh, is, is something that Jesus is relating himself to is most evident by the fact that he's calling God my Father. You ever considered that? Okay, so when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, what does he, what does he kick it off with? Our Father, right? Our Father. So we kind of 
if we're Christians, we just kind of generally accept this idea that God is our collective Father. But Jesus is choosing to be very specific here. He calls God his own Father, my Father. Well, that, again, might not really sink in for us in our particular circumstances. Maybe we don't understand how offensive that is, but to a group that has spent thousands and thousands and thousands of years of coming to God as our Father, their Father, to have some, an individual say, well, God is my Father. Well, that's offensive right away because what is he saying? Well, if, if God is his Father, then who are the rest of these people? How, how do they relate to God? And so there's a fence there just by that claim in and of itself. And again, we might not quite appreciate the the offensive nature of that, but think about this. When it comes to understanding parents and children, even as we do, I think this this is helpful. This is an example I hope hope will be helpful to you. But think about how there are times in your life where somebody will look at you and say, you, you sound just like your father right? You sound just like your father. Or what about, you know what? You look just like your mother. You look just like your mother when she was your age. Because there's something about the essence of the genetic material that's passed from parent to child that produces characteristics coming from that same essence, right? When I was growing up, my dad had this sound that would come out of him whenever he would blow his nose in the morning, right? It would sound something like this, okay? And I would make fun of him, and I would say, Dad, you know, what is, what, what you, everything going all right? You know, guess what? Now I make the same sound, okay? I don't know how it happened. I don't know when it happened. It was just one day I got up in the morning, I blew my nose, and I'm like, wow. And my two boys, they came, and they were like, you sound just like Grandpa, Okay? So I said, well, yuck it up, because guess what? It's coming. Before you know it, you'll be doing exactly the same thing. Because there's something about that, that when we have that shared essence, we are together in a way that we otherwise have no understanding, no way to explain it. That essence is is a common essence. That's what Jesus is saying, my father. Okay, but then, then it gets even more offensive, because... Not only is Jesus referring to God as his own father, but then we have to consider this this relationship between father and son in that particular culture at that particular time. A, A father and son, a son could stand in for the father, not like as a representative of the father, but as if that person was the father himself. This, the, the firstborn or only son inherited everything from the father. It all went to that particular person. And so if the father was absent, like let's say when it came to a negotiation or, or a contract or a legal arrangement or anything like that, the word of the son was equal to that of the father. If the father was absent, the son could speak on behalf of the father. And it was treated as if those things were said by the Father himself. So that's what is happening here. Jesus is saying, hey, I come from the same essence as God. That's offensive in and of itself, my Father. But then also, I'm doing the work of God. 
Uh, and by the way, I'm working all the time. Just as my father is working all the time, I am working all the time. And this is even more offensive than we probably recognize because, again, this Jewish culture was all surrounded upon and built upon the law of Moses. That, that was the defining unique factor that when it came to the Jewish people is they had something that no one else had. They had the law of God, the law of Moses. And, and Rick talked last week about how that law started, you know, somewhat containable and then started expanding and included more and more and more and more rules and more prohibitions and more, you know, pretty soon we weren't even getting anywhere near breaking the law because there were so many rules that had been developed to get you away from even having the chance to break the law that it was, it eventually ended with, I think, 613 different laws, rules, whatever. A lot to keep track of. But so the culture was understanding and, and based upon keeping the law. When you keep the law, then things go well. When you don't keep the law, then things go bad. And it's not like we can say, oh, well, they just, they didn't understand. No, they had thousands of years of history on their side in terms of when they were obedient to God's law, God's wishes, good things had happened. Uh, and when they were disobedient, bad things happened. There, there was this cycle of blessing and curse. And, but now, all of a sudden, Jesus is on the scene, and he's, he's healing somebody on the Sabbath. Uh, that's a problem in and of itself. But then he tells the guy that he healed, take up your mat and walk, which was also against the law of Moses. And so we've got multiple infractions here. Now, Jesus being a Jewish rabbi of anybody, Jesus should have known better, right? So they're even looking at him like, what is wrong with you? So now we've got... He's claiming to be equal with God. Then he starts making authority statements about himself, about who he's able to speak for, uh, how he's able to basically, if, if you've seen the Father, you've seen, or if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, I and the Father are one. This is all sprinkled out through the entire gospel of John, but here is, is one of the places where it's just so direct. So instead of complying with the law of Moses, Jesus is acting like he's above the law. He's acting like the law doesn't apply to him. And guess what? It doesn't. It doesn't apply to him. Jesus is something entirely different than the law. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the good news of God coming to us to rescue us, knowing that we can never live up to keeping all of these performance standards up to snuff, to be righteous in our own selves. Jesus came to free us from that burden. Matter of fact, in, in Mark, the second chapter of Mark, verse 27, Jesus just directly says, hey, look, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, this, this Sabbath idea is a divinely instituted rest for people. It's like a, 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 the, the original... Um, kind of work relief. You know, you, you need, the weekend didn't exist. Uh, but in this particular case, there was a day of rest for humans. But then Jesus in verse 17 said, well, God is always at work, and I too am always at work. 
And so at some level, the Jewish leaders knew that, well, God must always be at work. Because otherwise, if the whole of all that exists is held in the palm of the hand of God, and God takes, phones it in one day, takes a day off, well, what happens? The whole thing implodes, right? So God is at some level at work all the time. So Jesus is, again, equating himself with God. God is working, and I am working, at least at some level. So that, to say to those particular people that somehow you were above the law, well, that is a claim that will get you killed. And so that's what it says. They plotted all the more to kill him. It's offensive. Those are fighting words. But again, if, if everyone has to decide, if everyone has to decide who Jesus is, that's not something that just these folks had to wrestle with. It's something that we have to wrestle with right here and right now. So when they were kind of approached by this Jesus, and they see what he's doing, and they hear what he's saying, and they themselves had to wrestle with this question of, is this guy a liar, or is, is he a lunatic, or is he Lord like he's claiming to be? Well, they pretty early on concluded that, well, he's either a liar, biggest con man that has ever lived, or he is totally insane, and he's making all of these wild claims with no basis whatsoever, and he must be stopped. But the one thing he definitely is not, he is not equal to God, he is not God in the flesh, he is not the Messiah, he's none of those, he's not Lord. He might be a liar, he might be a lunatic, he might be both, but he's definitely not Lord. And so this is where Jesus starts to say, oh, you're offended by that. Well, buckle up, it's about to get worse. It's about to get worse. Then he goes on to start making claims about judgment. He alone has the authority to be the righteous judge. Well, this, this, is, no, this is no good. We might say it this way. Judgment depends on Jesus. Judgment depends on Jesus. And again, it's hard for us to imagine how offended these particular folks are, but let, let's just read uh, verse 24 and 25, and then I'd like to put it in our context here, because I think we have exactly the same problems today. Uh, 24, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now notice he didn't say, gee, I, I'm really rooting for you. I, I hope that you get your act together and start doing the law better than you currently are because, you know, I, I really would like to see you make it in. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, uh, well, you know, we'll see how it turns out. He says, well, the judgment has already occurred, at least in one sense. He's saying, if you believe in me and if you trust in me, then you have already passed from death to life. You've already passed from death to life. That's, that's very offensive. But then when we think about, well, what does it mean for people that call themselves Christians today? I think that you would be surprised that if we all got together and one at a time we talked about it for long enough, 
I could probably almost, well, I can almost imagine that I will hear a number of times this particular phrase coming out of people's mouths. Well, I'm just trying to be a good person. Just trying to be a good person. Trying not to be a bad person, trying to be a good person. And here Jesus is saying, "Eh, that's not going to work. That's not adequate. You're not ever going to measure up. Wait a minute. Now that offends me. Are you offended? If Jesus says, all that you're working for and all that you're trying to accomplish, all of that is still not ever going to add up to enough to make God love you any more than he already does, to make God accept you any more than he already does. That's offensive. I like to be calling the shots here. I like to be in control. I like to be in charge. And so for these particular folks to be hearing this kind of claim that Jesus alone has the authority to judge, well, again, those are words that will get you killed. And so the second thing is that Jesus alone has the authority to move us from death to life. It's Jesus alone that has the authority to move us from death to life. And so make no mistake, Jesus is coming back. He is coming back and he will be judge. But we've already been given the information about what that judgment depends on. And thank God that it doesn't depend on us, but it depends on him. And so God loves us enough to make a way for us where there otherwise would be no way. But do we believe that's true? Do we believe that Jesus has the power and the authority to make that kind of thing, to make that deal, if you will? Do we believe that Jesus is authorized? I don't know. Look at verse uh, 28 and 29. This, this really throws people for a loop. Uh, it says, a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Now, here we go. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Now, doesn't that just take back everything I got done saying? What in the world is going on? Is this one of those things we're going to say, well, the Bible is just so contradictory. It's, it says this, and then it undoes that, says that. Blah, blah, blah. No. We have to remember when it comes to John's understanding, how he continues to tell us who this Jesus is, he tells us what is good and what is evil. We think good must be doing the right thing. Evil must be doing the wrong thing. But Jesus says, good is believing and trusting in me and bad is not. That's it. Well, it can't be that simple. We often say, oh, it can't be that simple. So who is Jesus to you? Because when we hear stuff like that, our first reaction is, well, it is, it's, it's conditional. Must, it says right there. But no, good means believing in Christ, accepting him for who he is, receiving his power and his authority and his gift of salvation. And evil is saying, I think I'll, I'll see how it turns out. That's the other piece. Just like there's no middle ground uh, in terms of us trying to create a lovey, uh, fuzzy, uh, acceptable Jesus, 
There's also no middle ground when it comes to judgment. I don't know if you remember several weeks ago, we talked about this in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, verse 16, most famous verse in all of Scripture, we can probably all quote that, right? For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's good. But what are the next two verses after that? Anybody remember verse 17 and 18? Take a listen. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Now here's the most important one. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. There it is. We continue to think and operate our lives like, well, there's time to get that figured out. You, Bob, you asked me this question about who is Jesus. I say, well, I'm not quite sure yet, but I'm working on it. I, I got some time in the future. I'm hoping to come to an answer in, you know, maybe a few weeks or months, maybe a few years. But I've got time to work. I'll sort that out on my deathbed, maybe make a deathbed confession or something like that. But the reality is, what does the Scripture say? The Scripture says there is no more time. The judgment has already happened. It's already over. And who was judged to be faithful, rightful, true, righteous? Jesus alone. And so if you get to that judgment and your plan, I just want to free you from this right now. If your plan is to submit your resume to God and say, look at all the wonderful things I did. Look at how many wonderful things. You were great to create me. I did such great things for you. No. You know what happens when the judgment happens? When Jesus is there as the judge and you stand before a holy God, my answer will be, I'm with him. I'm with him. That's who Jesus is. He's got the power and he's got the authority to actually get the deal done. There's no go talk to the manager. He's already done this for us. Now, will you believe or will you trust him? I think there's three ditches, potential ditches that we find our way into, at least three. There's more, but we're going to talk about three. The first is that we still kind of think at the end of it all, well, my performance really does actually matter in the end. In the end, it really is about, we, we read something like that, uh, that conditional sounding statement, and we think, uh, I'm, I'm just not so sure. That's ditch number one. Ditch number two is, is right there with it, which is, well, we better kind of hedge our beliefs a little bit so that just in case, just in case, it turns out that Jesus really is a liar or a lunatic. Well, then I better continue on my track of trying to be a good person and trying to earn God's approval and trying to earn God's favor, just in case, just in case. That's not faith. That's believing in myself. That's not what we're asked to do. We're asked to put our faith and trust and hope in Jesus alone. That's ditch number two. And the third one is, like I've already said, you've, you've got time to figure it out. That is the biggest myth of all, that you've got time to get it sorted out. There is no time. Remember, those who believe already have new life in him. Those who reject him stand condemned already. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Maybe today is the, is the day. Maybe it's the first time that you recognize and receive Jesus for who he truly is. Lord, Savior, 
Maybe it's the first time today that you recognize he does have the power and the authority. And by the way, it's not by your own strength that you draw this conclusion. Let me free you from that too. It's not you believing in your ability to believe. That's what we often think faith is. Well, I will just continue to believe this by talking myself into it. And when I face challenges and struggles in my life, then if I can just say the right things to myself and deny the circumstances, then if I have the ability to believe in my own belief, then maybe that will be enough. But that's not what's happening here. When we accept and we receive Jesus for who he truly is, then along with that comes this divine gift of faith. And that faith that is not something we produce, but is something that God gives us, is what then clings to the promises. And the faith itself is what helps us know that his promises are true, that he can be trusted, that he does have the authority and the power to do what we can't do for ourselves. So when it comes to you, who is Jesus to you? Who do you believe that he is? Is is he a liar? Is he just the greatest con man of of all time? Is he a lunatic? I mean, let's face it, even today in our world now, we're, we're not short on people making crazy claims, are we? Plenty of crazy claims out there. Is Jesus just another person that has made all these outrageous, preposterous, and crazy statements? Or is he Lord? Not just Lord in a general sense, but is he your Lord? Is he your Lord? This Jesus is the God of all creation. All things that were made were made through him. He is the light of the world. He is the one who gives salvation. He is the one who brings us and passes us from death to life. When we look around and we see sin and we might even feel sin crawling on our skin. We might be tempted to think, God, I've got to wash myself clean. You will never wash yourself clean enough to do what only God can do for you. But if you come to Jesus and receive him, maybe not for the first time today, maybe it's the first time in a long time. This is not something that we don't need to do over and over again. Yes, we come to a, 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 salvi- or a saving understanding of who Jesus is once, but it's not over. And the reality is, our new life in Christ has already begun. The moment you believed, and the moment you accepted, and the moment you received him for who he truly is, that is the day, that is the moment, that is the nanosecond that you passed from death to life. And so there is no fear needed. The answer, the judgment, it's already happened. When you find your identity in him, then it no longer matters what you say about yourself. It matters what he says about you. Because his word has the power and the authority to make all things new. So trust him. Receive him. thank you that this new life in you is not something we have to wait for. It's not something that we have to wonder about. It's something that starts now. 
Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit who leads and guides us and crafts us and forms us into being more like you. So Lord, we surrender our endless schemes of trying to do it our way. We surrender all of our attempts to control the circumstances. And instead, Lord, we we turn it all over to you. We ask that you do what only you can do, that you do the transforming work in our lives to lead us and to guide us, to save us, to restore us, to bring us into the, to the new life that you have for us and to, to grow us into who you're calling us to be. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We, we praise you for who you are. Our Lord and our God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.